This is the Books and Authors Fantasy and Sci-Fi Podcast with your hosts, Scott Walker and Jamie Davis, episode 193. Hi, I'm one of your hosts, Jamie Davis, author of Fun, Fantasy, and Sci-Fi Reads. I'm here with my co-host, urban fantasy and cozy fantasy author, Scott Walker. Um, You know, and Scott, actually, I'm thinking about um, the fact that when this episode comes out, you and I will actually be out in Vegas together for a conference about the time this episode comes out, Um, which for me will be great because it won't be like fall freezing weather because it's been kind of chilly here on the East Coast. We don't all live in sunny California like (laughs) some people do. Um, But um, I'm wondering, you know, what are you what are you looking forward to this week in Vegas? I mean, we're going to be surrounded by some of our best author friends and and it'll be almost like 1500 to 2000 authors there i think i don't know where the number is somewhere in between there but um it's it's going to be a big event it, it always is and and honestly the the number one response for me is the answer you just gave it's it's hanging out with my my current author friends and i always leave vegas with some new ones some new contacts so for me, the highlights just getting to to hang around other authors because let's be honest, I think most of us, our spouses, our family members, our friends are not writers. We can't we can't talk to them about what we're going through, ask them to help us out with challenges, or just be able to kind of, you know, kvetch in a way that someone will truly understand what we're talking about. Because what we do is is somewhat unique. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you haven't written before, you you don't really quite understand the path we're walking. So to be able to spend an entire week um, in, a, in a lovely hotel surrounded by the lights and glitter and flash that is Las Vegas with a bunch of author peeps who who get you immediately know who you are and to be able to just immediately strike up a conversation. You know, we have so much in common uh, at these conventions. It's really easy to meet new people. Mm-hmm. And I've been to a lot of conventions, uh, both in the traditional business world and in the creative side. This one's like the most friendly convention I've ever been to. The vibe. I've never met. Yeah, yeah. I haven't met a single person who was um, putting on airs or was trying to be arrogant. Uh, everybody was super friendly. And I'm talking very successful people, very successful authors. And you can stop them in the hallway. You can introduce yourself, be nice, be polite, of course. But they're happy to spend a couple seconds saying hi, t- chatting with you. Um, so yeah, I can't wait for that. I'm looking forward to some uh, vending cake. I, I got to figure out which which flavor I'm going to buy first from the famous vending cake machine in the lobby at at I guess Bally's is now called Horseshoe, right? Yeah, they changed the name. It, the Caesars changed the branding for the for the for all the Bally's properties, so they're now all Horseshoe properties. So, but the cake machine remains. The, the cake, yeah. And for those of you who don't know what this is, it's a vending machine that sells individual slices of cake of various flavors and varieties. And it is the bomb. It is like our fa- people take selfies with the cake machine. And we've actually told the hotel if they get rid of the cake machine, that should be grounds for voiding our contract. So, <laughs> there would be an uprising. I mean, the number of posts in the 20 books Vegas group about this cake machine. <laughs> are off the charts and i look i'm guilty i think i posted a video of my first at my first 20 books in 2021 uh because it's not just a vending machine the song plays there's uh-huh. like this whole animation as you're 
Yes, <laughs> it, it is an experience. Like it's it's tradition. Like it it is the quintessential Las Vegas experience. Insofar as it's not just I'm buying a cake, I'm having an experience. Nothing is ever over the top enough in Vegas. I'll say that. Yeah, it's awesome. Anyway, so very much looking forward to seeing some old friends. I'm going to be playing um, one of the uh, Luke Gygax. That's uh, so cool. Yeah. Right. I, I, so, I wish I had the the bandwidth to pull that off and, and go to, go to attend one of Luke's games because just to play D and D with the son of the game's originator is, you know, he he knows things about the game and the 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 neat, the way it sh- I don't want to say should be played because that's the beauty of D and D is that there really isn't a should be played version of it but you know just the 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 it, it's almost like coming home. Um, I have the original three, like three, um, paper bound paperback box set oh, that wow. came out. Wow, that is like crazy. OG. my, 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 I had a little hobby store that, you know, had, you know, plastic models and, and race and, um, model race cars and, you know, slot race, slot car racing and stuff like that. Um, and I came in there one day and he just said, I have something you might be interested in. I just got it in. And I was hooked. I was done. I, you know, I just, so. Well, I'll, I'll say this. I mean, uh, I, I came in at AD and D so I had the box set. Things were a little bit more polished by then. Um, what I love about, cause I, I did this at last year's Vegas where I was able to sign up for one. It only was a squeeze in one session. I think he did multiple sessions. I got to do one four hour game session. And what I loved about his session was that he ran the game the way I like to run the game and the way I like to play the game, which is it's not on rails necessarily. Uh, and it's not adversarial that, that the person running the game is not out to kill the players or to make it uh, overly um, challenging for them. It's not a, a try to, to make you fail mentality. He leaned in in several instances of, oh, I see where you're going. Oh, Yes let's see if we can make this even more fun. And so he met the players halfway and, and, and made incorporated where they wanted to go with the game into um, what he already had established as the campaign. So yeah, there are things that, are, that were quote unquote supposed to happen, but he always allowed the game to pause on the main quest. So we could do these little really fun player driven experiences. And for me, that's the most enjoyable for me. Everybody else's mileage may vary, but for me, I love those kinds of well, and that's, play styles. I, I think that's why I'm, I'm so drawn to the game. That type of role playing game is because I am a storyteller, and so as a as a DM and as a player in a group in a party of individuals, I always enjoyed the most the times when it some some random idea came up to solve a problem that I had never thought of as the DM or as a as a character. Somebody else goes, "Wait a minute." I mean, so to give you an example of how that happened, um, I once was a dwarven thief who got stuck on the wrong side of a portcullis. And the party was either going to have to, we we tried everything, bend bars, lift gates, we tried all of it. Everybody tried their strength roll. Everybody failed. And so it it was leave me there or come up with a solution. And the solution they came up with was knock me over the head so I was unconscious cut me up into pieces small enough to fit through the bars, put me back together and use the party's only ring of regeneration to bring me back. 
<laughs> and there's no way the person running that game saw that coming. He's like, okay, um, well, let's see if it works. And it worked. I had like lines, like the scars never fully healed. Oh, where wow. they cut okay, me apart cool. and the golden glowing ring of regeneration turned to like flaky, rusty iron. Perfect. So that's a one and done. That was a one and done thing. You'll never <laughs> be able to use that ring again, but it worked. And by the way, you're now, your charisma is like seven and you're, you're like, you've got crusty bleeding sores all over your body from where they cut you open. So yeah. Oh man. But we, well, you, pre- who would have think of something like that? Right. And that's, that's just it. I mean, for me, that what you're talking, you're hinting at what I love most about it, which is the collaborative co-creation, where you are yeah. literally working together improvisationally to tell collectively a a single story. And I I don't come in with a really detailed campaign when I run a campaign. I come in with a very loose idea, and usually what I'm doing is I'm riffing off what the players are giving yeah. me a minor exchange could end up being a whole complete subplot to the campaign. I might have a particular general idea. And halfway through that session, the players are clearly interested in wanting to go down a different street. They don't want to go down that direction. And my job is not to say, no, you have to stay on the rails. I have a map. You're going to stay on the map, follow the directions. My job is to make it an entertaining experience for them. Right. And so rather than deny them and put up barricades and say, you can't go down that street. I'm like, yeah, I don't know what's down that dark alley. Let's go find out. And so I kind of go with them. And usually they don't even know that I'm doing that. They, they think that it's all pre-planned after the fact. And when I confess, like I, dude, I had no idea it was down that alley. That just makes it more enjoyable for them. So I, I totally get you on that. We got to play D and D at some point. We do definitely. And by the way, we folks, this is the Books and Authors Fantasy and Sci Fi <laughs> Podcast. It's not the D and D Scott and Jamie Podcast, but we just got off the rails. We're looking forward to seeing each other at the conference, and that's going to be fun. Um, but uh, Scott, what what uh, book wise, what are you working on right now? What what's what's on your schedule? So great question. I've got book two in my Manhattan Magic cozy urban fantasy series that has been uh it's in the hands of some beta readers i'm looking forward to getting some feedback in the next week or so on that and once i get that i will turn to editing that polishing it up and that drops december 1 it's available for pre-order right now i'm also pleased very very excited to share that the cozy veils uh shared world cozy fantasy collection is now a thing. It is a group of authors that uh, we are working together to write stories in a shared world. That shared world is all focused around cozy fantasy, not cozy urban fantasy. Um, so if you dig, you know, food and drink and found family and fires and really fun ex- uh, experiences, humor, those types of things in your writing or in your reading, I think you'll enjoy this collection. We are aiming to have that out later this year. I'm not going to give a specific date yet, but I did just get through reading all of the submissions for our first anthology. And I love the diversity of types of stories. So we've got uh, we got a murder mystery in there. Got a very humorous take about someone trying to sneak into a bookstore uh, and getting caught, by the way. 
Um, we have some really interesting different reads that all fall under the cozy fantasy umbrella. So very, very excited about that. And I love the idea of cozy veils. What a, what a great way to envision the whole shared universe kind of thing where everybody has their own valley with its own community and its own little quirky things. And they can be part of the bigger whole, but still separate in their own little world. So that's just a wonderful way to do it. Yeah, thank you. I, I, that model seems to be interesting. But look, we're creative. So the first thing these these people want to do is like leave their valley. So I mean, they're like, hey, can we play here? Can we play there? Can we go? Can my can my character travel outside my valley? I'm like, well, yeah, technically they can go anywhere they want to. So yes, the authors are creating their own veils if they want to. Um, but their their characters are free to roam around the entire kingdom. So. We'll be rolling out some more information about the world itself and some of the stories. Some, we've already dropped, I think, at this point, a teaser or two on our social media accounts uh, for some of the upcoming stories. So pay attention to that. CozyVales.com is the website. You can go there, sign up for our email newsletter, and you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at CozyVales as well. That's V-A-L-E-S. How about you, my friend? What are you working on? Well, I am. It's NaNoWriMo month, folks. National Novel Writing (laughs) Month. In the month of November, authors and people wanting to be authors are challenged to write 50,000 words of a complete novel or a complete novel in 50,000 words or so. Um, However you get to that number uh, is how we do it. I've um, never, uh, since I started, when someone first dared me to do NaNoWriMo in 2014, I have never not completed a NaNoWriMo, and I'm not going to start this month. Even though I have a conference in there, I'm going to jam out my 50,000 words plus, um, and that's going to be on Lone Wolf Squadron Book 8, title yet to be named. I still haven't come up with a solid decision on the title there, but uh, Lone Wolf Squadron Book 8, we're going to be revisiting the folks in Lone Wolf Squadron. Again, delving into that whole space western thing where I'm, um, uh, you know, we're protecting the homesteaders in the wagon train kind of thing as they delve into an undiscovered sector of the universe. So I am excited to continue that storyline and uh, I love these characters. They're so much fun to play with. Well, and, you know, we've talked about this before, you know, the series, I love the series premise, but I found it interesting that, you know, we just, I think in the last episode, if I'm not mistaken, we talked about our, our individual experiences playing Starfield. And, you know, for me, they clearly leaned into the Western in space mm-hmm. modality. They have all these weapons with these very Western names. So the names of the guns are, yep. I think it's like, Peacemaker, lawgiver, mm-hmm. lawmaker, whatever. They're they they leaned seriously into that Western stuff. And so I I'm in, I'm guessing you you're digging that aspect of Starfield as well. Oh, I am. The Starfield, and in fact, Starfield, there's some things about Starfield that have really lent to the ideas in my book. I won't say I take ideas from Starfield for it, but it but it is inspiring me when I'm writing my stories you know, to play them side by side, kind of the story in my mind and playing the game of Starfield has been a lot of fun while working on these projects. I, I'm sure I, we all get inspiration from, from everything. I guess you call it research, call it research. Video game playing is research for you now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, no one, no one probably wants to hear us talking no, anymore about we're, we're, this. Let's we're, jump. 
we are we do have a guest, folks. I promise you. <laughs> and that guest up. is a returning guest, urban fantasy author Mel Todd. And Scott, why don't you read her bio for those folks that weren't around when she was on a previous episode? Yeah, with pleasure, my friend. With pleasure. Currently residing in Georgia with three cats who tolerate her, she writes her own version of urban science fiction. If you're looking for science, aliens, invasions, explosions, and maybe a touch of magic in some series, you found the right author. She fully admits to being weird. After all, she writes about aliens and knows how to milk goats. If you want to talk books, she'll talk all day long, but admits she hasn't had much time to watch TV in the last three years, which is the price of a writing addiction. And with that, let's jump into our chat with Mel. Mel, welcome back to the podcast. Um, you're a returning guest. You've been on before a couple of different times. But for those in the audience who haven't heard your other episodes, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about the books you write? Hey, I'm Mel Todd. I write mostly urban fantasy and science fiction with some urban science fiction thrown in. And one of the big things you'll notice anything under my name of Mel Todd is I write relationships that are more... for found family and friend relationships. I don't tend to write books with romance or sex in them. And then for the most part, I'm here celebrating the conclusion to my best-selling series, Twisted Luck. Congratulations. That is a big <laughs> milestone for authors. It, it is, especially when it was eight books in. I kept going, <laughs> oh my gosh. This is kind, well, it's I, kind I, of scary. To finish the series. It, it is. I mean, I say it's a milestone for authors. It's clearly a milestone for readers, too. A lot of readers have, have contacted me and said, you know, I can't wait to read your series, but I'm waiting until it's finished. And and they literally will wait a year if they need to, 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 to jump into it. Um, so congratulations on that. And congratulations to your readers. I, I want to circle back to the, the term you just mentioned, urban science fiction. fiction. Uh, okay, let's, let's maybe unpack that a little bit for readers who aren't familiar with that term. What, what should they expect when they pick up an urban science fiction book? Well, urban science fiction is basically you're talking very current technology. You know, so we all have cell phones, jets, and then you add something into it that isn't magic-based but jumps it into the realm of science fiction. So I'm thinking aliens show up. Uh, you have a warp open or a rift open that allows you to suddenly start traveling to other planets. You're just adding that sense of wonder, but you're doing it with science, not with magic. And so the reason I co coined that is I wrote a series called the Caleb Chronicles that has shifters in it. You know, people who can turn from person to animal to basically a warrior form, which is our typical werewolf, you know, on standing bipedal with claws, fangs, all of that. But I wanted to figure out a way to do it without magic. So I went with nanobots because nanobots is something that we are just about on the edge of, but we haven't quite figured out how to do it. But lots of people are playing with it to my great paranoia on the days that I read the science articles. But so that for me, that science, urban fiction, uh, urban science fiction, because it's just, just what could be, but isn't there yet. And and there's that that old saying that you know to somebody from 
Even a hundred years ago, the things we do with technology today would appear as magic. So, heck, what are you talking about? To most people on the street, the things we do with technology today <laughs> appear like magic. I can guarantee you, not one person out of a hundred that you walked on the street could explain to you how an iPhone works. You're you're probably uh, you are right. You're you're correct. You're correct. That's for sure. Um, so. The Twisted Luck series is, first of all, fantastic. I haven't read all of them, but I've read the first couple. And um, Corey is just an amazing character. And I'm curious what the genesis was of this series. Um, tell us a little bit about how it got started and, and where you came up with the character Corey. Because she's so she's got so much going on, even in like book one. I mean, she's, she's dealing with a lot. I had always had this idea in my head of somebody who just had strange things happening around them and could never figure out why. I mean, just literally the whole calling the 911, which was the very first scene in the opening book, has always just been, it's you again. What is it this time? You were the operators know who she is because she is called so often. And I just kept hugging at that idea, trying to figure out why and how and how do I get to it? And it just kept expanding. I've always had a bit of a issue for the the hero archetype where I'm here to save the day. And because after a while it both A gets boring and there's only so much you can do with the whole I'm here to save the day cuz what do they do once the day is saved? And so I wanted to play around with the idea of somebody who while they may or may not be the chosen one isn't doesn't have that oh i have to be the person to rescue everybody but more of the person who is in the situation where she doesn't have a choice it's kind of like the equivalent of you know here here's a common scenario way too many people have been in you're at home with your kids and the house catches on fire I can guarantee you there is not a parent alive who wouldn't rescue their children first. They may not want to be the hero, but in that situation, they are the only people there who can do it. They aren't going to call 911, stand outside while their house is on fire and wait for the fire department to show up. They're going to be in there rescuing their kids. And so what happens when you constantly have this person who is just like you and me? She really is. She wants to work. She wants to go home. She wants to put her feet up and watch something stupid on TV. And she's constantly in the situation where if she stands back and says, not my problem, people die. And it was just a lot of fun because I think it's more interesting to have a main character who doesn't have the, I want to do this, but more of, I am literally the only person here who can do this. And it changes the dynamic quite a bit within the story. Yeah, I mean, it does. And we talk about, we, we authors, we talk about things like agency for our characters. And does that character have the ability to make the choice? Are they put in a, you don't have a choice scenario? Um, we talk about motivation. We talk about a lot of that. Um, and it's interesting to hear you. I mean, it's not interesting getting to know you having worked with you through the Delta underground operative shareholder over the last year and a half or whatever it's been. Um, it's no longer surprising to me to see that you're taking a new take on something. Cause you kind of always come at the, a lot of these common tropes at like a 
45 degree angle and you give it your spin, which is what I think your readers love about your books. Um, so that's not surprising. Um, but I have to ask, I, I have not written an eight book series yet. My my longest series to date is my only series right now, which or, or my second. I technically, I guess I've got two series up. But anyway, um, I've done a six book series. Uh, unlike you and Jamie, you've got multiple series under your belt and they've all come to completion. This is an eight book series. You've been spending a lot of time writing Corey. I'm curious. Like, I know what it was like for me to say goodbye to my first MC in my series. What's it like when you had to say goodbye to Corey and, and follow on question, Senator, uh, did you know this was where she was going to wind up when you started writing book one? I'll answer the second question first. I had always had the final scene roughly in my head. I had always kind of known how that final scene would work. What I didn't always know is what the consequences were. I, I, do you know what the term omaki um, means? No. Uh, so omaki is used a lot in fan fiction, where it's basically a cutout scene of the characters doing something that just doesn't help the story flow. And so you pull it out as an omaki. Uh, for a while, I was seriously wondering if when the final scene happened, if Earth was going to get slapped back into a reality where there's actually hundreds if not thousands of civilizations space civilizations that we had been unaware of because the magic had just pulled us enough out of phase with the rest of the universe that they couldn't interact and part of me still kind of wants to do something like that but it probably won't be this series so i had always at least known how the ending was and the some of the finer details of what the consequences of the ending were, I hadn't quite figured out until I started writing it. For the first one, so I have talked, I have an author friend that I talked to quite a bit, and he had always talked about Project Drop. And I'm like, I've never experienced it because I'm always like, okay, this is done. Now I got to start on the next one. I got to do this. I got to do this. Oh my gosh, have I had Project Drop. I It didn't dawn on me until a couple days ago that now when I'm starting on something, it's something new. I don't have Corey and Joe and Sable to go back to. I mean, these characters have been in my head nonstop for almost three years. You know, and I've written, you know, basically 800,000, it's probably closer to 900,000 words in three years on this series. And all of a sudden they're gone. And it finally dawned on me that's part of the reason why I've been basically depressed and have been struggling is because it's the first time ever I've had project drop because this huge thing was done. And oh, wow, has it knocked me for a loop. I mean, I've managed to get something done. Like I've been doing editing. I finished another book, you know, and stuff, but I kind of just want to curl up in the corner and sulk. And I think part of me is grieving. I'm grieving that I don't get to go back and continue finding out what happens to them. So it's been a lot harder than I expected. I I had that with my Broken Throne series. It really, you know, the ending of that is very, um, I, I, it's almost like an epic fantasy ending in an urban fantasy story, um, you know, where mm-hmm. it's kind of bittersweet in some ways. And um, that made it even worse, I think, for me, 
was that it had a bittersweet ending. And it's, in fact, it's the ending that my wife hates. Like she, and she makes no bones about telling me that she hates the ending of that series. Um, now I've, I love the ending. I haven't heard a lot of readers tell me they love the ending, but she, she really wants a totally, completely happy, blissful ending into a book. And when she doesn't get it, she's pissed. And, and I get it. I, but I, I can understand that Mel. It is, it is so hard to say goodbye and that's why I wanted to ask that question. I'm glad Scott got to it because it is it, you. You live with these characters; they're part of your life, right? I mean, you know, they're they're mm-hmm. like companions in your mind. I know it makes us sound psychotic, but it's not wrong. I really, I wasn't expecting it, but for the last three years, every time I finished one book, well, her, the story wasn't over. I was just closing that chapter and then I needed to get to work on the next chapter and the next chapter and the next chapter. So I never realized that I didn't have a drop because I'm like going, eh, I, I don't understand this project drop. I have too much to do. You know, Cause as soon as for lots of people, I think once they finish the book, Oh my gosh, I'm done. It's over. I was always going, okay, now I've got to edit it. And I got to get it to the beta. So then I've got to get the cover finalized and then I see it pushed up. And in the meantime, I need to be plotting that. All of a sudden, this one was done. And I went, oh, I don't like this. <laughs> I didn't sign up for this. <laughs> well, spinoff, prequel, I mean. I, so I know. am writing other things in that universe. Okay. I just finished. Okay. okay. I just finished. Um, it's like supposed to be a quasi-thriller. So that is done, and I have called on a huge favor from Nick Backer uh, to see if one of his super fans is willing to read it and give me feedback. Because, again, it is did not come out the way I thought it would come out. It, it came out very odd. And, and my beta reader said she enjoyed it, but it definitely didn't meet what she thought of as a thriller. So I have no idea. But I've got that. I have an epic fantasy I'm working on that's outside this world. But I want to write a Victorian trilogy that will be placed just as magic is really sinking in worldwide and have a lot of the social upheavals going on as more and more people get magic. And I'm I'm kind of looking forward to the series because the opening scene is going to be exactly the same in all three books, just from a different POV. Because the opening scene is a lord sitting down, three people in his study, his daughter, his son, and his bastard son. And explaining to all of them, this is what he's doing, and they're getting this part of his inheritance because he's dying. And all of them, that first scene is going to be that, whole wait, why are you? Who's this? We've never known that you had a bastard child, you know, and have it with that mix of class elitism, magic elitism and independence. Cause she's going to, one of them is a woman who's going to be fighting for her right to control her own life. And so I think it's going to be a lot of fun playing with all of the consequences of having magic. Cause how do you force a woman to enter marriage? She doesn't want to, when she can literally set you on fire. <laughs> see this is Just what i'm saying. talking about these, these kind of burning about. questions are the questions we want answers to so and yet yet another books and authors podcast exclusive 
you heard it here first, folks. You did. I well, and 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 actually, I love. You know, it's funny. Ever since we got into the duo project together, I've really enjoyed exploring different points of view in my writing, and that whole concept of of perspective. And, 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 you know, oh, yeah. and, and, um, I love the concept of the, the same scene leading to a completely different novel because it's from a different well, perspective. Well, that, and I, I'm going that that first chapter is going to be very hard to write because I need to make sure that the Lord is using words that each of them are going to interpret differently. The same words. Nice. That's cool. Yeah. You know, so that um, because all of them, like the son who's the bastard, is going to have his own way of interpreting what he says. The firstborn is going to have a different way. And the daughter is going to interpret the words very differently. So that, that one chapter is probably going to require more work than the rest of the books all together. But I want to play with that. Then you add in magic and then you add in all how magic is going to be changing society. Because if you've read my book, there's a lot of hints as to how radically different the society in this world is. I mean, one, one of the big ways is, for the most part, the only people who ever lie literally are politicians. Because you never know who can tell that you're telling a lie. And politicians, because they wrote it in that you couldn't run for political and elected office, if you were a mage. So they're the only ones who can lie to each other because by definition, you can't run if you have magical abilities. And so you have a world where everybody, there's a lot less crime because if you can't lie, it's really hard to get away with anything. If you get caught. Well, yes, you do have to get caught. I mean, honestly, we won't talk about how many murders nobody ever realizes were murders because it's really easy to kill somebody. And if you don't realize that it's not natural causes, yeah, well. Yeah. We, we've talked about that on a duo Zoom launch party, I believe. Okay. <laughs> a self-incriminating one. Yes, that one. <laughs> that one. Da, da, da. Um. You spend a lot of time at conventions. I know you go to different cons around and it's, that's your thing. It's, it's, it's one of the things that I look at what you do and I'm like in awe because you really, you, well, you put yourself out there. It's one of those things that, I mean, I'm very much an extrovert, but the work and the energy involved in getting out to cons and setting up your table and so, talking to readers and getting on panels and all those things, it's a lot of work and you, you seem to, you seem to make it look easy. Um, what's it like going to cons and meeting the readers firsthand? Um, how does that work with you? Does it energize you? Is it just part of the job? How do you feel about that? So I am very much a fake extrovert because I am a massive introvert. I will tell you the number one thing that I have is the majority of the cons I go to is my own room. So I can go back into my hotel room and suck on my thumb <laughs> because it is very, draining but on the reverse like the selling books and talking to people who come up to me when I am there as Mel Todd is getting easier I, I still have a hard time telling somebody how awesome my books are it's much easier for me to tell how awesome Scott or Jamie's books are that that is easier and that's probably both a cultural and a societal thing that we're encouraged to never brag about yourselves and you really have to 
but I spent a couple of years teaching and I taught everything from kindergarten to high school, everything else. So being on panels has never phased me. I have a job to do. I can give speeches without even blinking. None of that bugs me. I have a much harder time with what we refer to as the bar con, where you're just networking and talking to other authors because I get caught in this loop of, I have no idea what I'm supposed to say. But if somebody comes up and says, hey, tell me about your book. Okay, you've told me what I'm supposed to talk about. If you come up to me with a drink in your hand and go, hey, what's how goes it? I'm like, uh, hi. It's like my brain will just shut off. So the actual being there and trying to sell your books and interact with fans, that is getting easier the longer I do it. Honestly, the one thing that stuck with me the most um, came from a book called Newsletter Ninja by Tammy LeBrock, who is just awesome. But she said one of the things you have to remember is when they sign up for your newsletter, they already think you're a rock star. And that's the phrase that I keep in the front of my head is that when somebody comes up and goes, oh, I love your book. They have already elevated me to the level that I have people like Patricia Briggs and Mercedes Lackey. And I probably in the long run am not that much different from Mercedes or Patricia in the fact that we get up, we make coffee, we do what we enjoy, but they already regard me the way I regard them with this whole, oh my God, they're talking to me sort of thing. And so I just try to act the way I would like any of my heroes to act towards me. So I try to be nice and enthusiastic and remind myself that they're here to meet Mel Todd, not Melissa. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, it does. I mean, I, so, I've gone to, I've gone to, I was in, you know, traditional business roles for several years. I kind of have bopped back and forth between creative worlds and traditional business worlds. I've been to business conferences and I've seen how that goes. And that tends to be the opposite of what I see at creative conventions or creative events. Mm. The imposter syndrome is rampant in the typical, I would say, whether it's art, writing, whatever, you get a bunch of creatives together, imposter syndrome is rampant. You go to traditional uh, business uh, conventions, it's usually, oh, no, 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 they're going to tell you how amazing they are right off they the are. bat. <laughs> yeah. Very different worlds. But I, I've seen it across lots of different creatives. And um, I used to teach at one point and I, I was teaching the art of visual storytelling. So these are artists and I'm trying to give them primers on, let's do an outline of a story. We'll do a 12 plot point approach. You're going to write a paragraph for each plot point. Then you're going to draw art to accompany it, basically creating a 12 storyboard presentation, which you will then deliver in a five minute pitch at the end of this semester. And the whole idea was to take these talented creatives who are expressing themselves visually, but getting them used to being able to get up and talk verbally, you know, to, to express themselves verbally uh, okay. in a coherent manner and walk someone through their, not just their art, but through the story that's being told through their art. So I was co-teaching that. The other uh, teacher was an artist. And it was just wild to see a lot of these students jump up. And the first thing out of their mouths is, this isn't that really good. Or I ran out of time, but, or, you know, <laughs> this is not what I how I wanted it to turn out. But and I'm like, don't undercut yourself. Do never start by undercutting yourself. 
You're, I can never do what you do. Your art's amazing. So, you know, for me, to your point, Mel, I'm looking at these artists, these kids half my age, and I'm like, you guys are super talented, and all they can do is shake their heads and mutter and go, I'm not good, I'm not good. And so you're right. totally feel you on that. You're right, Scott, because that is having been in business conferences for a long time in, in, in a prior business venture, I was – You'd never have somebody get up on a panel or on on a pr- presentation and be anything but hyper confident. They might act- not actually feel that way inside, but the presentation of it would never. They would never let that out. That would just be the anathema to that kind of event. Well, it's true, and it's. I mean, it's one of the things that I've been working on with myself because I, I was in Fortune 100 company for quite a few years, and. I would find myself half half of my emails would have the word sorry in them somewhere. Half. And 99% of the time, what I was apologizing for, I had absolutely nothing to do with. I hadn't done it. I hadn't been involved, you know, whatever. But I was still apologizing. So it's learning to see things like that and cutting them out and cutting them out very fiercely. And you go to people are trying telling you how much they love your books. My immediate reaction is, oh, do you think so? God, I really was worried that they think this part sucks. Or, oh, I was so, you go, that is great. I am so glad you like them. And you have to learn to not allow all of the doubts and fears you have ever escape your author persona. Now, Melissa Todd, when she is whining at my, her brother, all of those doubts and fears come out like a fire hose. <laughs> but when I'm Mel Todd, I can't let that person have them. Well, because it's not, it's not <clears throat> what, you know, to your earlier point, it's not what your readers want. Your readers love your books and they presume that they're going to love you. They've got a connection or they, they that the book is their connection to you. If you wrote this really cool book, you must be a cool person. Really cool. Yeah, I'm guessing. Yeah. 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 So, you know, for you to say, I'm not a cool person, you know, you're literally shattering, the, shattering their dreams. You're, you're literally. However, <laughs> on the flip side of that, I'm glad I actually knew Jonathan Mayberry before I read any of his books. Because after you've read his books, you think, oh, my God, he's a serial killer. <laughs> Jonathan Mayberry writes some of the most creepy horror, horror books. So I'm glad I actually met him before I read them. Because <laughs> otherwise, ugh. And Jonathan, if you see this, I love you. I'll see you in February. (laughs) Hey, um, let's talk a little bit about your uh, writing process. Uh, We all have our own ways of approaching things. And we've already hinted at this earlier in this episode about how you tend to have your own take on things. From a a pure writing perspective, character Mm -hmm. development, how do you come up with your characters? How do they evolve? What's the process from getting them from an idea, a vague concept to fully formed character on the page? Uh, I have a character sheet that I fill out. It varies a little bit depending on the book. You know, uh, Lots of basic stuff are really important because eye color, height, hair color, skin color, all of that is the stuff that I try to make sure I have because otherwise I'll have somebody looking up into the eyes of somebody who's a foot shorter than they are. doesn't work. Then I work, one of the, let me bring it up. One of the things that I started using that I really, really enjoyed because it gave a lot of 
depth to the character and how the how it, they look is I have a section within it that talks about quirks, habits, and speech characteristics. And one of the things that I've been working hard on doing is getting better at making every single character's voice individual. So I try to make sure that when I'm designing the character, I actually put quirks or how they say things, their their best, what their favorite cuss word is, what their favorite term of endearment is, you know, their highest praise, um, how they automatically say hi to people and stuff, just because once I get that, it makes it easier for me to differentiate. And then because I'm a longtime table topper, I tend to give them basic stats like strength, intelligence, charisma, wisdom, dexterity, that sort of stuff, just because it gives me a super fast reminder of something simple. They're running all the way across town, but this character only has constitution of like eight. They're going to be huffing and puffing by the time they get there versus the one with a 15. They're going to be like, what? That was a run? So I'll do that stuff. But most of my character finding out who they are is very much discovery writing. I'll have a solid idea of who I need them to be. And to be honest, I have loved playing with Midjourney to get pictures of my characters because it's just really a lot of fun to be able to glance and go, oh, that's right. She'd be glaring at you right now as opposed to always just having them be a vague, much more vague. Once I get all of those out, I try to make sure that I do the internal and external drivers. Sometimes I don't know what they are until halfway through the story or what I think they are is not what they actually are. <laughs> Be amazed how often that happens. Uh, other than that, I, I'm always surprised when people say how good my characters are because, again, I'm always going, oh, I should be better. I should be better. I should be more like this person. But I'm pretty consistent about doing that. And then right now I'm working on doing at least short backstories for my epic fantasy. But this one I need, it's requiring a lot more development work because I don't have any shortcuts. In urban science fiction, urban fantasy, you have shortcuts. I don't need to tell you what their early education is like unless it isn't the norm. I don't have to tell you. All I have to do is say, oh, the high school cliques didn't like me. You understand exactly what I'm talking about. If I say, oh, the warrior cast threw me out. You're like, huh? What do you mean the warrior cast threw me out? So I have a lot more work to do on the epic stuff than I do for that. Uh, I like to figure out what relationships I'm headed towards. And for me, again, mostly the relationships tend to be more found family or uh, friendship based. I mean, I popped it before about why I don't really like writing romantic relationships. But I also think that those are in many ways the easiest to write because most people understand the act of attraction and how you overlook things. Finding friends, especially once you get out of uh, grade school or middle school, it's really hard. Adults have a very hard time making friends. You either find yourself with your coworkers or the people you grow up with. And when you have holes in either of those, friendship is like one of the hardest things that they've been finding lately for modern adults. 
especially if you happen to work with people you have nothing else in common with. Yes, we can delve into sociological oh, things no, very well, easily. We Sorry, could, because I mean, <laughs> let's face it. I mean, we don't we don't hang out with our neighborhood communities as much as we used to anymore, um, and we are more isolated than ever. Uh, social media has a fake connection with each other, but it's not really all that real. Um, and yeah, I, I completely get that. Um, you, you talked about you know building your main characters, and I love that you've. I, I love the idea. I'm going to probably start using that of of giving them character attributes um, and ratings like their D and D characters because you're right. That would so much color you know give you an instant picture of what how good they can be at anything. That you have oh, well, yeah. Do. Well, I mean, simple things like charisma, a charisma eight versus a 16. I, all I have to do is glance at it and go, oh, yeah, they're not, this isn't the smooth character. They're going to stumble and say the wrong thing mm-hmm. and piss people off. And I don't, at least because I have tabletops for so long, I don't have to do anything else. I just give them a number. And because I'm not, or because it's my world, I can, if I want, make a character with all 20s or even 22s. I rarely, rarely do because I liked having the balance. Mm-hmm. And I have always loved the juxtaposition versus intelligence and wisdom. You can have a super high intelligence and a super low wisdom or vice versa. And that 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 one's always fun to me to play with that juxtaposition. Yeah, I'm curious. No, go, Jamie, go. I'm, I'm curious, like, you know, your main characters are super developed and have a lot of things. But in a long series like that, I know the side characters are the ones that sometimes my readers latch on to almost as much as the main character. So I, I have a question. Is there a favorite side character you have from Twisted Luck? And what is it about them that appeals to you when they show up in your story from time to time? Corellian. Corellian is such an asshole. <laughs> for, for me, the thing about Corellian is, is he is a cat, but he has human level intelligence, but completely finds human morals and human restrictions absolutely stupid and just, why are you wasting your time with this? So it means that most of his comments are extremely direct. And they also sometimes highlight how absolutely silly we are. Uh, let, let's take the easiest low-hanging fruit, human modesty. The number of movies we've all seen where the woman's holding her hands across her nipples and her hand over her crotch when somebody walks in because she's naked. Last time I checked, 99% of all humans on Earth have two nipples. Why do we have this huge outrage at the idea of somebody seeing your nipples. We all have them. And he will just cut through all of the social constructs that we put around things that actually mean nothing because the social construct around nudity Literally, it's just that there's a social construct. There is nothing that happens or doesn't happen because you happen to see somebody with or without clothes. And he just cuts all the way through it. And they can't argue with what he says because he's right and they know it. And so it does really make for a hilarious 
counterpoint to everybody else who has to operate within society's rules. Well, and you get to hear what a cat's thinking because we all like know cats are like that, right? You know, like the dogs are all like, oh, master's home. I get to play. It's going to be fun. I love him so much. And and then, you know, the cat's like, hey, look, you didn't leave enough food out this morning and we need to have a talk about this. And no, I'm not going to sit on your lap. And oh, but wait a minute. Now I want to sit on your lap and I'm going to make myself sit on your lap. Yeah. Cats have the whole different view of the world. (laughs) They, it's so funny. I have a series of short stories I've written for a couple of anthologies where the main character can talk to animals and, and he can. And at some point, one of the short stories, he somebody's like, why don't you have a pet? That would be awesome because you'd be able to talk to your pet. He's like, animals are much more annoying than what you think they would be. And they're very, very focused up. He's like, the dog literally is in that pet play, food, pet play. And he's like, and cats, cats are the most selfish creatures on the face of the earth. Snakes just want to either be fed or sleep. And the person's like, you know, I never really thought about that. He's like, it's having a toddler that won't shut up. No, I'm good. I don't need any pets. <laughs> so t- um, I'm You've met readers in person. You've talked with readers online and and different interactions. What is a reader reaction to one of your books that has surprised you the most? Honestly, it's more of them reading into things that I didn't consciously put in there. And I, I, there's just been a couple of people who've like come to me going like, oh my gosh, I love the relationship between Corey and Joe. I don't understand how anybody would ever have that close of a relationship. And I'm just going, I'm torn either between, I really feel sorry for you because you should have those sorts of friends or what do you mean that you don't understand that? It's just sometimes the way people interpret what I've put out there kind of makes me in awe. And I go back and look at myself and go, did I do that? (laughs) I didn't know I did that. Did I do that? And they're usually finding good things. So I'm definitely not complaining or upset. I'm delighted that they're finding that level of good stuff. It just makes me wonder sometimes if somebody else is writing my books or if I'm adding things while I'm asleep that I don't realize. The the human subconscious mind (gasps) I've determined just based on books that I've written and I've had similar things happen where readers come up and say, Oh, you know, I found this hidden meaning that, you know, this happened in book two and it came back around again in book six. And I, how did you know to do that? And I'm like, just, just lucky, I guess. Um, now, I will say, I am have the world's worst habit of just having these throwaway comments, just random throwaway comments. Somebody mentioned something just because I'm trying to do a little filling as they move from scene to scene. And then two books later, I'll be like, oh, wait, I said that right. There. I could use that. Yeah, it, it's it's fun when. It's fun both ways, but sometimes I, I often find that that offhand comment, when it becomes useful like that, I feel so smart. I just, I just, I'm like, <laughs> oh, this, I must have known in the back of my mind I was going to need to use that later on in the story. Yeah, for sure. Because it's like 
yes, my brain saved me once again. So Scott, I think it's time for our no wrong answers segment of the show. What do you think? I love this. is My favorite part of the episodes. I love this. Okay. Love I'm this. ready. Are you, are you sure? No. <laughs> That's the right answer. Here we go. Question number one. Would you prefer to read a new book or go back to an old favorite? It depends. Do I need comfort food or a challenge? Comfort food, I'm going for the old favorite. If I need a challenge, I want something new. All right. Well, how about gas fireplace or old-fashioned wood fire? Oh, old-fashioned wood fire. Hands down. Awesome. What's your favorite book or movie villain? Book or movie villain? Probably Venom. Oh, from the Spider Man stuff. Is he a villain, though? Is he really? That's the question. Yeah. Is he? <laughs> I think that's great. Well, here's another one um, Wonder Woman or Harley Quinn? Wonder Woman. All right. Last question Oreos, dunk in milk or no dunk? Don't eat. Oh, good. Didn't see that coming. Didn't good, see that good. coming. That's not true. That's not true. Um, the red velvet Oreos are the bomb. Okay. Ooh. But regular Oreos, I don't really like. And the pumpkin spice ones are eh, but the red velvet are good. And then, no, I, I don't drink milk, so it would never occur to me to dunk them. Okay. Fair, fair. enough. That's fair. Fair enough. That's awesome. Well, it has been an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us today, Mel. Appreciate that. <laughs> well, Congratulations on me. wrapping up uh, Twisted Log. That's crazy. It is. It is very crazy. Now I have to convince my brain that wants to work on a new story. <laughs> well, we got to come in. When you do your um, Victorian trilogy, we have to have you back. We just have to have you back. <laughs> that's that's better. Okay. So remind readers, when when does the last book, has the, wait, is the last book out yet? It's not out yet, yeah. right? Yeah. Not so yet. Re- remind us when that drops, please. <clears throat> so Balanced Luck, which is book eight in the Twisted Luck series, goes live on November 3rd. It will be in Amazon and KU for the full 90 days. And then I will be pulling the entire series wide early next year. Wow. A second exclusive in one episode. This is crazy. This is great. We're just <laughs> breaking crazy. We're breaking all the, the rules and, and getting all the information out there. Fantastic. Yep. So if you're a KU reader, jump on Twisted Luck. ASAP. Uh, and then where can readers find you online, Mel? You can find me at badashpublishing.com or meltod.com. And then pretty much any of the social medias, except for Blue Sky, because I have an account, but I haven't done anything with it yet. If you put, look for Badash Books, you will find me. And note that that's A-S-H, people. I don't use bad words in my public social media stuff. Awesome. Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> Thanks, guys. I love having Mel on the show. She's always so much fun. And I actually learn a lot about, you know, not from, from her writing style, I learn things that I, I want to delve into in, in my books as well. Um, we will have links to the final book in the Twisted Luck series, Balanced Luck, in the show notes. That book will probably already be out by the time we um, release this episode. So that's exciting. And uh, that'll be in the show notes over at jamiedavisbooks.com. You'll find links to everything else we talked about on the show in there as well. 
And I want you to just head over there and check it out. So uh, let's wrap things up. Scott, how can listeners get in touch with you and follow what you're up to? That is going to be very simple. Scottiswriting.com is my website. And I am Scott is writing on Facebook, uh, Twitter, and Instagram. How about you, my friend? Well, you can find me, as I said, at jamiedavisbooks.com, where this podcast lives. It also is where my books um, reside, and at least links to where you can get them. And of course, you can also find me over in the Fun Fantasy Readers Facebook group, Jamie's Fun Fantasy Readers. Uh, we talk about all kinds of fantasy and sci-fi books and movies and TV shows over there. So come join the fun and uh, check us out. And make sure you get the next episode of this podcast, which will be coming out in a few weeks. And we want you to get all of them. So make sure you subscribe while you're at it. Until next time, I'm Jamie Davis. And I'm Scott Walker, asking you to keep on reading and keep listening here to the Books and Authors Fantasy and Sci-Fi Podcast.